You may be seated. I invite you to turn with me to Philippians chapter 1. We'll be looking at the last few verses of this chapter this morning. Circumstances are a powerful force in uniting people. There's um, an immediate connection when we realize that someone is experiencing the same thing that we are. And think about the various challenges and trials that you face, and when you know someone else is going through that same thing, there's, a, there's an immediate interest. Uh, there's a sense of community that begins to form and develop. Right? When someone in that community needs help, the rest of the group will oftentimes rally around them. It was more than a decade ago when Brian Wood was killed in a car accident. He was hit in an almost head-on collision with another car. And in that other car, there were four um, occupants. Two in the backseat also died in the accident. The driver of that other car was Jordan Weikert, a 21-year-old who was driving under the influence of drugs and allowed her passenger to hold the wheel while she took off her sweater. Brian was driving along the road with his pregnant wife on the other side of the street. He saw the other car swerving in and out of his lane and then eventually began tumbling forward toward him. And so his immediate reaction was to slam on the brakes and swerve the car to to the right or yeah, to the right so that he could he could face her. Uh, you know, the, the car tumbling toward him head on and, and protect, try to protect his pregnant wife. Because of that action, he did, in fact, save the life of his wife and his unborn child. The baby was okay. She, did, she, entered, she started having contractions, but they went away. Now, the reason I tell you the story is not because of Brian's sacrifice, but to tell you about what happened afterwards. Brian worked for a video game company. He was a programmer who helped make some of the most popular games at the time. Um, And I'm not a gamer, and if I'm honest, I would have to say that I've always thought of gamers as kind of people that are a bit of loners. They'd rather just sit in front of a computer or a gaming console, and if they interact, it's just with other loners. (laughs) There's this gaming. Now, I'm... I recognize there are probably some gamers among us right now, so uh, no offense. (laughs) But I was surprised to learn that this gaming community started a memorial fund in the honor of Brian Wood. They, complete strangers, began donating money to this fund. They wrote letters of prayer and encouragement to his wife, and, uh, and they rallied around this widow to care for her. Uh, much better oftentimes than, than the church does in situations like that. And so the, the first chapter of Philippians, Paul speaks about how the work that God began will be completed. He prays that their love would abound in discernment and that they might be filled with the fruit of righteousness. But all of this is ultimately leading us to his exhortation for unity. 
That's what he's been driving toward, and that's going to be the climax in, in chapter 2, the first half of chapter 2, is this call to unity exemplified in the gospel. Paul longs to see them with one mind and one spirit striving side by side for the faith of the gospel. So he recognizes that trials will come. He acknowledges the trials that, that exist in the lives of the Philippians. He knows that suffering is sure to increase for them. But he wants to know he, that they will be united right, in order to endure through those trials. Unfortunately, we are all too often content to take the path of least resistance. Right? We know that in those that, that where there's no resistance, stress will remain low, energy will remain full, and nothing significant really ever happens. We quietly go about our lives. Believers often cower before a hostile culture because standing firm for the gospel is inconvenient. And although Christians might suffer alongside one another, that isn't ultimately what unites them. Right? Their circumstances are always secondary. What truly unites them is their gospel faith, and that's what Paul is driving home in this passage. All right? The community that we enjoy because of our union with Christ is essential to our perseverance in suffering. And so we ought to prioritize it accordingly. Let's ask the Lord for his help in understanding this passage. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for this letter written to the Philippians for a specific time with a specific audience in mind, and yet we know that your spirit has us in mind as well. And as we read it, these are your words to your church. It is a word for us in a season of trial and suffering that we would recognize our need for Christ, and because of our union with him, we would recognize our union with one another, and a community would develop that would be unbreakable. Lord, we ask this in Christ's name and for your glory. Amen. Read with me, Philippians 1, verses 27 through 30. Only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come and see you or am absent, I may hear of you that you are standing firm in one spirit, with one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel, and not frightened in anything by your opponents. This is a clear sign to them of their destruction, but of your salvation, and that from God, for it has been granted to you that for the sake of Christ, you should not only believe in him, but also suffer for his sake, engaged in the same conflict that you saw that I had, and now hear that I still have. Amen. This is God's holy word. The first point in your outline this morning is that Paul calls us to be united for the gospel. Verse 27 united for the gospel. Paul's focus on unity begins here, and he'll actually 
stick with this theme of unity until 2.18, chapter 2.18. So really, we're going to have several sermons from this section, but that's the overarching theme in all of it. It's unity. And so he says, let your manner of life, literally that phrase, uh, the root of that word is city, and so it means live as citizens. Philippi was a Roman colony, thus its inhabitants were Roman citizens, and this came with certain privileges. Right? Paul wants them to think the same about their heavenly citizenship, as he'll say explicitly in chapter 3, verse 20. To live according to the privileges and responsibilities of belonging to a heavenly city. And so to live in a manner worthy of the gospel is to possess a lifestyle that complements the faith that you proclaim as well as the community to which you belong. You are a representative of that community. And so Paul desires to know that the Philippians are standing firm in one spirit and one mind, whether or not he is able to see them again. And he's desirous to see them. He's concluded the previous section with his recognition uh, that he, he uh, thinks and, and, and longs to see them again, thinks he will. But whether or not he comes and sees them, he, he, he wants to exhort them to be united. And I think spirit here should be capitalized, firm in one spirit with one mind, striving side by side. If you, if you take it as a, kind of a reference to the human spirit, as some do, it's really hard to distinguish it at all from the next phrase, the, the human mind. Um, right, so one spirit and one mind, that word is literally psyche, and it's the idea of our inner desires, our thoughts, or our soul, often translated soul. So if you're saying that it's, uh, it's the human spirit, then now you really, you, you really have a hard time understanding, it. is it just a parallel thought? Is he just saying the same thing twice? Or is there something different about the first? And I think there is. I think it's supposed to be the, a reference to the Holy Spirit that unites us. Right, so others suggest that the human spirit is just parallel with the human psyche. And either way, even if you take it as a parallel thought or a, or a complementary thought, the emphasis is upon the church's pursuit of unity for the gospel. Or that we have the kind of unity that knits us not only externally as we gather together, but internally, that we feel that connection. And so the description of the saints striving side by side is military language. It's reminiscent of the phalanx, right, which was, uh, according to Ralph Martin, consisting of a, a body of trained spearmen who fought in closed ranks. So you're picturing an, an army of, uh, gathered together with their spears uh, in close ranks, very close together, fighting against their enemy. It's a picture of the church militant, fighting against a wicked culture for the faith of the gospel. And so soldiers train for several grueling months in order to be able to stand firm. Their success depends upon the strength of their unity. If unity is required for other communities to succeed, then how much more are Christians dependent upon unity? And here's Paul's point, that no greater unity exists among a community than the unity that's achieved for the sake of the gospel. 
Right, many of us want to relax, right? Just that, like we want to just come home and relax and not get stressed out. We want to stand uh, comfortably. <laughs> and standing firm feels tense and like effort. Paul's clear exhortation is that we stand firm and that we strive. That's not easy. That's not relaxing. Strive side by side in unity for the faith of the gospel. We are called to be active defenders of the faith as well as defenders of the community of faith. He has got both points in mind here. We should expect resistance and therefore stand firm in the face of it together. Now it's, now's not the time to step back, men. Right? God has created you for this. Stand firm. It probably sends your minds racing to your favorite military combat scenes. In Braveheart, William Wallace gives a, a stirring speech about freedom. He sees the men on, on the verge of deserting the battlefield. They're looking at their opponents and they're saying, why are we here? Why are we, we going to fight? We're just going to die. And so one of them even says, we're going to run and we're going to live. And William Wallace says, run and you'll live at least a while. And dying in your beds many years from now, would you be willing to trade all the days from this day to that one for just one chance. One chance to come back here and tell our enemies that they may take our lives, but they'll never take our freedom. Now, I said that a lot more calmly than he did. <laughs> so I'm, I'm a little more reserved than William Wallace. and We're not on the battlefield right now, but it's a stirring moment. I watched the scene last night just to remind myself. And there's another scene that I had to watch. I always think about it when William Wallace is telling his men to hold. I, I watched the clip and noticed in the comments section three weeks ago there were a bunch of GameStop shareholders encouraging one another. Hold! Hold! It's going to keep going up. But both scenes in Braveheart are excellent examples of what, he's, what Paul is getting at here. This relationship between steadfast commitment and unity. When one suffers, both suffer. But holding fast strengthens unity. And when Christ told his disciples to make disciples of all nations, he also left them with the promise that he would be with them always to the end of the age. And so it's the spirit of Christ at work in you, empowering your witness and emboldening you for the fight. And so we can stand all the more confidently, recognizing that Christ is with us, that Christ is leading the way. In addition to the unity that we experience for the gospel, we are also assured in the gospel. That's the second point, verse 28, assured in the gospel. Here the believer's assurance is strengthened when they courageously face their opponents. 
Notice it, uh, it says, not frightened in anything by your opponents. This is a clear sign to them of their destruction, but of your salvation and that from God. Courage in the face of opposition provides two assurances, according to this verse. Clear signs, he says. One, the destruction of their, uh, of their opponents. It's a clear sign to the opponents of their destruction. And secondly, the salvation of the Philippian faithful. So we need to begin by addressing who these opponents are. We said there's going to be at, at least five different occurrences of, of opposition mentioned in the book of Philippians, and, and it's unlikely that it's all the same opponent. All right, we can eliminate the opponents that were referenced earlier in this chapter, those who sought to afflict Paul by preaching Christ from selfish motives, selfish ambition. Right? He, he called those opponents brothers in verse 14. But these opponents are clearly headed for perdition. And so what's not clear is if these opponents come from inside or outside the church. Are they professing Christians opposed to Paul, or is he referencing outsiders persecuting the church? Well, I think we get a hint in verse 30 where, where he compares it, their suffering to his own. He says, they're engaged in the same conflict that you saw I had and now hear that I still have. Well, if, if that's the case, if they're dealing with the same conflict that Paul was dealing with, then they seem to be adversaries outside the church. The attack upon the church is from the world. That was the thing that, that Christians witnessed in Paul's ministry over and over again, the persecution that he faced. And these opponents would be individuals from a quick, uh, crooked and twisted generation, among whom Philippians were to shine as light. He'll mention that in chapter 2, verse 15. <clears throat> so O'Brien, Peter O'Brien suggests that the word translated opponent may even indicate mob violence. Is that not a relevant threat to modern-day believers? Are you prepared to stand firm in the face of mob violence that greets you just outside the church? Right, Paul's point here is, is truly remarkable. Have you, have you ever associated Christian unity with the conviction that it brings to a hostile world? Remain steadfast in unity because it will point sinners to their destruction. It, it almost doesn't make sense. Right, what's the connection there? Well, I love what Alec Matir says. Here indeed is conviction of sin. A person gripped by the awfulness of eternal loss, it arises from seeing a church standing for Christ standing for eternal things, enduring worldly loss and disrepute for the greater riches found in the Spirit, and throughout all, standing united. And so the modern evangelical church has become so tepid and timid in the face of persecution, called to stand firm for the faith, they cower. They package the truth in 
winsome language. But we'd rather blend in with the world than attract its negative attention. And we have a hard time facing opposition because, frankly, we've made friends with the world. We treasure their attention too much or their friendship. Benoit says, it is God who sends the persecutions they must undergo, the solid resistance with which they must confront them, and the assurance of salvation which follows. And so standing firm in unity will also strengthen the believer's assurance. Facing opposition and witnessing one another hold the line is a great source of encouragement to us. Unfortunately, it would seem that the church is generally more willing to accommodate our opponents rather than to confront them. Paul says to stand firm in the assurance of the gospel. Plant your feet and prepare for opposition. We plan on going to Planned Parenthood again this Saturday. And I would encourage you, as, as Matt mentioned, to pray that we would stand firm in the face of the wickedness that takes place in that building every week. And this past Wednesday, we, we saw this worldly hostility and depravity in action. Uh, we arrived just as one man was leaving the building. After sitting in his car for a while, he, he came over in kind of a, a counter-protest. And he began telling uh, disgusting jokes, trying to be as offensive as he could be. I've never heard anything more disgusting and blasphemous come from someone's mouth. And his whole goal was to simply offend us until we left, to be just utterly disgusting and offensive until we walked away. And so he's telling jokes about um, killing babies. And, um, and, and worse. But it seems that in all of his efforts, we were more committed to protecting life than he was to promoting death. And so he ultimately left after about an hour. And I thought a lot about how we responded to the situation. On the one hand, I'm, I'm thankful that we outlasted him. That experience provides a, another testimony of that assurance of our salvation. It's a sign that God is at work emboldening and uniting the church. He was standing side by side in that moment. On the other hand, I, I doubt we'll soon forget the disgusting things that were said that morning. But ultimately, I pray that our lack of fear in the face of that man's taunting was a clear sign of the destruction that awaits if he refuses to repent. That our unity and our standing firm would ultimately lead him either to a conviction of his sin or to a trembling, terrifying fear before a holy God who will enact justice. Now, our, our goal is, is not to find comfort from peace and quiet. 
right? But to be comforted by the promise of the gospel. And so we must know that Jesus faced our greatest enemy, the sin that once enslaved us all. God's justice demands that sinners face the punishment of his wrath. If we want to be saved, we must be perfectly holy. And that's a standard that none of us could reach. But instead of leaving us in our sin and misery, God sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins, to appease the wrath of God, to satisfy justice on our behalf. He didn't shrink back from the task, but he drank the cup of God's wrath in full. And he did it while we were enemies. While we were hostile toward his truth and love. Apart from the grace of Christ, we deserve no better than the most vile of sinners. But God being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us even when we were dead in our trespasses made us alive together with Christ by grace you have been saved that's the gospel that unites us to Christ and that's the gospel that unites us to one another so that we might stand firm in the face of opposition it's the same grace that sustains us in the midst of trials and tribulation. And that grace that saved us promises to preserve us. And so we are united for the gospel. We're assured in the gospel. And we'll close with this last one. We're privileged by the gospel. Verses 29 through 30. Privileged is a wonderful word. It's the believer's privilege to believe in Christ and to suffer for Christ. So, well, I like one of those. I like the first one, believing in Christ. That's, that's favor. That's God's favor. That's been granted to me, but it's also been granted, Paul says, that you suffer for Christ. One commentator said, the fact that our adversaries cause us to experience the second gift, the gift of suffering, indicates that we have truly received the first, the gift of faith. While suffering is never pleasant, it's a privilege and honor to suffer for the Christ who suffered so very much to save his people. So I think the time has expired for comfortable Christianity to succeed in America. Political and social opposition is on our threshold, and so we must recognize that suffering for the sake of Christ is pretty much inevitable in this life. In fact, Paul says that we ought to count it as a privilege to do so. This isn't suggesting that we should seek out suffering, and I'm sure some would accuse us of that in going to Planned Parenthood. That's not the purpose. We're not seeking out suffering. We don't long for opposition to show up. Paul isn't challenging the Philippians to always be on the lookout for opponents to confront. 
oh, there's another person I can try to offend. But his assumption is that they will come around, especially whenever the Spirit is at work uniting saints in Christ. So we should not seek it out, but neither should we shrink back from it when it comes. How will you respond when your ability to train up your children in the nurture and admonition of the Lord is under attack? What will you do when a hostile crowd from the Tower District gathers on the sidewalk in front of our church and attempts to disrupt the worship service? These are things that our church leadership is pondering because we see the writing on the wall. But we also think God has placed us here for such a time as this, 